We have been studying the virtues this summer loosely, and quite often we've been tackling the <clears throat> excuse me, the sin of the cycle of Trinity Sundays, and you've got the seven deadly sins once, twice, and thrice during Trinity Tide. The first time the extra theme, if you will, is purgation. The second time it's illumination by the Holy Spirit. And the third time it's union with Christ. This morning we, we heard St. Paul mention the faith of the Colossians. And we know that faith is one of those cardinal, excuse me, not cardinal, theological virtues. And he said that that faith was in the hope of Jesus Christ. And we know that hope is the second of the theological virtues. Love is the one that ties them all together. Love is the virtue, the third of the theological virtues that brings even the cardinal virtues to home base, to where they can actually be useful to the human life, to human flourishing in a way that exceeds what we can do on our own without the aid of God's grace. Going back to Aristotle from his ethics. Excellences we get by first exercising them as also happens in the case of the arts as well. For the things we have to learn before we can do, we learn by doing. For example, men become builders by building and liar plays players by playing. So too, we become just by doing just acts. Temperate by doing temperate acts. Brave by doing brave acts. Will Durant, in the early 20th century, summarized Aristotle's sentiment with this phrase, which has become quite popular. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. This is such an important truth for contemporary Christians to understand. I hear comments like, I want him, pick, uh, pick any particular teenager of today, how about? I want him to do the right thing because of a right heart. This is a very noble desire. But it's not a very realistic desire for most young people today, or perhaps for any of us today. That's the telos. That's the end goal, to live virtuously out of a right heart. To get there, however, one must live virtuously out of conscious, conscious action. To act repeatedly in virtue. To train our hearts and our minds to automatically act in virtuous ways. 
To gain the virtue, we must practice it. We become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. We learn to worship God more effectively, more truly, more faithfully, more fully by worshiping him more and more, over and over. We don't just flip a switch in our brain and all our sin is erased and all the virtue we want is immediately working in us. It takes time and development of habit. Now, before we get too far down this road, I want to state a warning about talking like this, if you will. All the work in the world on developing good habits doesn't make us better Christians, though it may look like it. Let me explain. In the world I grew up in, it's a very different world, there were many people that developed good habits and excellent moral character. And they never went to church. This, I believe, in my younger days, was normal in America. And it was normal in the 19th and early 20th centuries. This was the cultural effect of a strong Christian influence for hundreds and hundreds of years in the West. In case you haven't noticed, things have changed. The last 20 to 30 years have seen an amazing cultural change in our society, something that history rarely records. The church has perhaps been caught on its heels, unprepared for the moment we live in. My point is to say that simply forming good and virtuous habits is not what the gospel is about. The gospel should bring about such habits in our lives, but just again with much work on our part. We've spent many Sundays this summer dealing with the seven virtues and how to inculcate which virtue to deal with which sin. And this is, I believe, a very important step in our telos as Christians of finding union with Christ. I think it's a missing ingredient in modern North American Christianity. Yet this Sunday's gospel reading helps us to keep it all in perspective. Please turn with me to the gospel of St. Matthew chapter 9. In those pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 654. St. Matthew's gospel Chapter 9. Starting in verse 18, please, please read along with me. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. <clears throat> First of all, please notice the virtue of faith exhibited by the ruler. It isn't perfect faith, I'm sure, and by the way, neither is yours nor mine. Perhaps it is eight parts desperation and two parts faith. If you knew of a healer 
Your daughter just died. You're going to go grab him and bring him. You have no idea what he is. Or if he can heal, bring him by. The faith is there at some level. And I think it's maybe a little bit more than might be exhibited by others because my daughter has died. You lay her hand on her, she'll get up again. We've got indications of resurrection here, don't we? Continuing at verse 20, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Again, note the faith. Again, not perfect, I'm sure, but faith nonetheless. Indeed, Jesus' words to her in verse 22 indicate this. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Jesus then comes into the ruler's house and tells them to essentially relax. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. Of course, he's ridiculed for this statement. As you can imagine, he would be, even today. It would um, generally, in our culture, be thought quite uncouth and wrong-headed to say such a thing after someone has just died in that person's house, right? That would, like, what's wrong with you? But Jesus puts the crowd out, and when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. My friends, all the habit forming in the world cannot do for you what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for you. Jesus is in the business not just of asking for habits, good habits. He's in the business not just of healing you, but he's in the business business of resurrecting you, making you whole and wholly his. This is why we work hard at participating in this action of God in us. This is why the pursuit of virtue makes sense. Before the incarnation, the Greeks' idea of virtue, ideas of virtue, were excellent thought games, good mental imagery. They were also impossible to accomplish faithfully. Without the virtue of love, which became incarnate, enfleshed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, none of the other virtues are really possible consistently. All of this virtue we've been talking about this summer is realized in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that, his resurrection of you and me. Yes, we still have lots of work to do, but never think that it is even possible without the grace of God working in us because of Jesus. So my friends, this morning, let us with open hearts hear God's word, and with open hearts come to the table and partake of his grace. Amen.